Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done, and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment, before the monsters came, humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests, co-hosts, and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film and what we think it means, using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode is one that I've been really looking forward to do for some time, because everyone on the show, uh, and myself included, big Clive Barker fans, uh, we, we all love the original 1992 film, and... Uh, we have so much to say about the new one that just came out. We get to talk about Candyman. Gonna be a little yeah. awkward because we only get three, like three more times to say it before we're released. But we're a little divided on whether or not we should conjure Candyman in the episode. Ah, oh, fuck. Anyway, <laughs> folks at home, we're pumped. We're excited. Get excited with us. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes and Looper on everything genre basically and if it's monsters i'm obsessed with it and i'm pleased to introduce our wonderful full slate of fantastic co-hosts we have luna Minwi. thank you so much for being here thank you we have andre couture our illustrious uh reviewer and fantastic editor thank you andre as always of course and we have mike vaughn who uh don't know from his own site, Video Attic, or from Geek Vibe Nation, where he just got done reviewing the living hell out of all the Fantasia films and rocked everyone's socks off. Thank you so much for being here again, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. Loving it. I'm so excited to talk about Candyman. Honestly, uh, the original had a big impact on me. I loved it growing up. It has one of my favorite plot devices that I think is greatly underused, and we'll get to that later. But so folks at home, how we're going to do it is we're going to be talking about both the original 1992 and the recent sort of sequel that just came out. It's been in theaters. We all love it. And we're going to act like the other Candyman films don't exist. So, <laughs> uh, if you love them, sorry about that. Maybe it's for another episode. Uh, but... We're just going to move along uh, in that manner. So uh, the original 1992 Candyman would uh, Mike, would you like to, to do a brief summary for the folks at home? Sure. Um, so the movie um, starts with um, an academic um, name, named Helen uh, Lyle, uh, and she decides she wants to write her thesis about urban legends and myths, specifically Candyman. So she visits um, this part of town where she learns about um, this legend and how the um, the people like of Caprini Green kind of uh, internalize um, a lot of their hardship into this this mythic person she um basically learns that you have to say his name five times in a mirror to summon him and of course she doesn't believe this and um you know of course um somebody you know so many people do in these um horror movies they uh do the thing you're not supposed to right um 
not to spoil it, it's over 20 years old, but um, bad things start to happen. And basically people think that um, Helen's crazy, but we all know that Candyman is, you know, actually a thing in this universe. And um, don't say his name five times. Don't do it. Not in a mirror. Or do it. It's true. Which is why we're we're doing something that we've never done before in this podcast. Uh, we're all staring at a mirror while we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, we're always kind of looking into a black mirror. So that's true. Yeah. True. But I have some thoughts on that that I'm not going to bring up until um, we cover the, the new one. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. For the, for the folks at home, uh, sometimes we deal with the, the context and deeper meanings directly after reviews. Uh, but because these films are so tightly interwoven, we're going to be dealing with all of that towards the end of the episode. So stick around. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that, Mike. It's so interesting to me because, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's just so much brilliant about this film. We'll get a lot to talk about. But um, next, we're going to go into our personal reviews of the film. Maybe Luna, do you have anything you'd like to throw down? Sure. I mean, I, this is pretty easy for me when it comes to the 92 version of the film. I still watch that film regularly, mm-hmm. like many times a year. Uh, I love the theme song. I sing it in my head all the time. <laughs> it's just such an iconic film for me. And Tony Todd as Candyman is like, I guess, what I would strive to be if I were a murderous ghost. Um, <laughs> so for me, the film is five out of five. I, every time I watch it, I absolutely adore it. It's like it takes me to different places at different times, even when the world seemed to be falling completely apart in summer of 2020. And I watched the film. I was crying, but I was still enjoying it because I needed it at the time. It was just, it's mm-hmm. just such a great film. And I could not say like more better things about it, I guess. So <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's definitely a masterpiece. But uh, as always, my review will come last. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Andre? I've actually come to this film a little bit later than I thought I would in life. I have very early memories of seeing the opening of uh, the third Candyman movie, which I was um, just reminded of uh, last night because I, I just went in and I watched all of them. Uh, so oh I, I just remember the opening of the third one really like freaked me out as a kid. And I just didn't know which like what it was attached to. There was just like this thing that really got to me and i think the imagery is the thing that spoke to me the most which the first uh film is so abundant in is the is just the visual imagery and using those symbols to like get to you which uh mm-hmm. I, I think is one of its strongest points it's a almost like a perfectly crafted film that gives you exactly the focus that it's trying to tell you about and warn you about Mm -hmm. although i think it it does get caught in some trappings of uh retelling folklore and stories passed down from generations of people and then amplified by white voices but also reshaped by them in a way that like this story isn't necessarily theirs to tell, but mm. the academic side of it almost justifies it. Although there are still some things that are in the teaching of the legend and going over the origins and like that professor that's like super posh and is like, well, this is how it really happened. Like you're going to listen to me tell you how it really happened, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah. 
always makes me very skeptical about like uh, the concreteness of of the truth. I, I think that it doesn't necessarily succeed in examining itself as that because it's a film following someone who very much lives and subscribes to the the white lifestyle and benefits from that benefits from gentrification which is a big theme mm -hmm. in the film and is also directed and written by two completely different but similar-minded uh white men which i understand that this movie probably wouldn't have been made if people insisted on um back in 1992 like an all-black performance production crew or anything like that which i think also speaks to its problematic nature is mm -hmm. that we need for some certain things to be amplified but it also needs to be self-critical which i think this doesn't quite get there but the story that it weaves is absolutely fantastic and engrossing but i can mm -hmm. see how people got the wrong idea from it yeah, sure. which is why we have the second and third film mm -hmm. yeah i i think it, it's just um it's misleading for some people because a lot of people can't figure out exactly what this was trying to say or maybe it was too subtle mm -hmm. i don't know but that being said i would give this four four out of five just because for those who can see what the the folklore is saying about the disenfranchised those who are always like seen in uh, a lens of fear and like a defensive nature that their story is the most important yeah okay cool thank you so much there's a lot to talk about uh, i look forward to talking about it and kind of touching on some of those things later in this episode appreciate it uh mike it's uh a great movie um it's interesting um i rewatched it um just before the press screening for the new one just to kind of reacquaint myself because it's been a, it's been a while um and i mean watching it in um this climate it's actually kind of interesting i know like i echo some of um andre's points about how there's some kind of problematic things in the movie like like it, it certainly hasn't aged horribly but it hasn't aged particularly well either like there was one scene um that i kind of remember being like wow um which was like when the cops burst in on helen with the cleaver and i'm like it is so heartbreaking to think that in any other real scenario if she was like a person of color she would that would be the end of her story right Mm -hmm. like how did they not just open fire on her like it looked like she was literally about to, to bring uh a meat cleaver down on someone you know i mean i think yeah. unfortunately that part of it really is still modern that doesn't seem unrealistic yeah <laughs> That's incredibly modern. It, it, it was, and, that, and and that's what's sad about it. It's it's not, I mean, it, it, it's sad because it is realistic. Yeah, because you have like situations where, and this might be too far afield, where like, I mean, think Florida, right? You'll have like white dudes rampaging shirtless on PCP with weapons. And yeah. somehow the cops will find the gumption to calmly talk them down for 35 minutes. Like... <laughs> oh my god so like that that strikes me as very like sadly timely oh yeah like it it, it was just um so like kind of surreal watching that scene and being like wow like if she was any other shade than white she that would be like mm -hmm. the end of helen yeah as a character um like most certainly like so like that was 
a little cringy to watch just because it does echo sadly um a reality i think there might be a but like an intentional mirroring of that scene mm-hmm. in the new one very much yeah yeah um, that. where exactly what you said what happened does happen and it's so degrading and yeah. debilitating yeah and i mean um you know again like it, it's a it's it's a movie that's kind of a push and pull for me like there's there's aspects that i think are really interesting and inherently provocative um and very kind of fertile for like um a, like a a good kind of rich gothic kind of film but then it kind of bucks up against some things that i feel like maybe are a little tone deaf like the whole i don't know like the movie i mean it's kind of weird how like helen's kind of the focus but it really should be recentered, which i think is something that i think that uh, the uh, new film kind of um mm-hmm. does so well which is refocuses it on the focus that it should have had from jump but anyways um yep. and you know helen's i mean it's not that she's not an interesting character but it's again i don't necessarily think it's her story to tell um she almost seems like a like she's a tourist right mm-hmm. like she very quite literally and metaphorically is a tourist um is. and yep. um you know you could see that as its own metaphor i think that might be um I don't know if that was necessarily um, text, but maybe you could read that as subtext. Um, I guess you could say this about both um, without spoiling anything. It's that like uh, each film's like main characters are both um, either actively or passively like exploiting this legend for their own notoriety. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And consequences yeah. abound. I think that's totally fair. How many, how many stars would you give it, Mike, personally? Yeah, so I mean, I I still think it's a really well made, well crafted movie, despite its problems. So I probably would still give it like a four out of five. Um, it's just one other point I wanted to make really quick. What like what I thought was kind of um, unfortunate about this movie um, was like Helen's, uh, you know, like the only like main African American character is kind of sidelined as like the best friend, and I think that's so cringy. <laughs> And also par for the course at the time. Like you, when it comes to um, these films, you know, in the eighties and early nineties and through Mm -hmm. the nineties, frankly, there was a lot of effort to like tell more stories about minority Mm -hmm. life and experiences and stuff like that. But it was always done through a white Mm -hmm. lens and Candyman is no exception. So to me, for it to highlight Helen and sideline her best friend and all that stuff, that's a that's a mark of the time. And I think often we kind of accept those sorts of things when it comes to films from the 60s mm-hmm. and, and all sorts of other time frames and other stories. And I think with this one, it's, it's no different. Like Candyman 92 is 100% a film of 92. And it couldn't be yeah. different yeah. at that time. Like, like, imagine if this film came out then. Like, it would not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> People would lose their goddamn minds. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it, it also, I feel at least that it did so much better in a lot of areas and was more critical than so many films of that era. Mm-hmm. And though it had some blind spots, maybe or wasn't perfect. It was massively an improvement over anything anybody else was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially her interviews, like Helen's interviews. Mm-hmm. Like she's like sitting sitting there listening. Like, of course, the white academic shouldn't be the one tra- championing the story. Like, right. we know that now. Right. But, right. you know, at the time it was like, and this still happens in academia. Like people are like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm studying it. So I'm bringing it. You know, I'm I'm doing this social justice service by by writing these papers and being this like voice of truth to the people or whatever it is. And it's like actually, people have been telling the story a long time. They they're doing fine. So <laughs> yeah. you can either be the academic that allows in 21 like in today's age, you can either be the academic that compiles and memorializes what's already there or you can be the academic that's like let me tell you about these things i heard about yeah um yeah we're like I, I, yeah so anyway i that's that that's neither here nor there but i think that yeah you're absolutely right there are lots of sort of cringy by today's standards roles or writing for white people but also there was it, like Jeff said, there are many ways that this film goes above and beyond, including criticizing white academics. Yeah, I was just I, I was just going to say, I, I did like how, like, revisiting it, you know, I could see that kind of satirical biting edge on academia. Um, I mean, it's not subtle at all, but I, I thought it added a nice texture to it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to rewatch um, the new, the old one, probably also today. <laughs> hell yes on that. It's interesting because, okay, so for me, I'll straight out the bat say that this is, uh, I mean, it's a 1992 film. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's objectively perfect in my eyes, but I'm still going to give it a five out of five because one, Tony Todd is a legend and he's so iconic in this performance and powerful and frightening but relatable and you empathize with him even though like you don't want him to gut you but you kind of get it if he does and i think that's it's not like freddy krueger where he's like a predator right like Candyman was wronged and his trauma has taken this like we can talk about a little bit more towards the end of the episode but it has taken on this iconic folkloric like vengeance entity aspect because he was wronged and it makes it a lot more sympathetic, empathetic, mm-hmm. uh, and, and wonderful, I think, it, in a very rare way. I also think, it, so coming as a, from, from my background as a recovering academic, I think even though it does kind of shift the narrative in ways with like following this, this you know, white grad student character, that's actually part of the reason I give it a five out of five. Mm-hmm. because one, I think grad students are the perfect fucking plot device. <laughs> they, because they know just enough to get into trouble <laughs> and do things they shouldn't do and be places they shouldn't be and, and open up Pandora's boxes. They shouldn't open up, mm-hmm. but not enough not to do them. It's fucking great. Grad students are, uh, I was one for a long time. They are, 
wonderful in so many ways and but being a grad student is complex and sometimes you'll do anything for that funding because you need to and that includes going down rabbit holes you shouldn't Mm -hmm. perfect plot element and the criticism of academia for me i think um i think if she were more a standard protagonist it would be worse oh yeah but in academia, obviously, like y'all were just talking about it um, so wonderfully, there's this long history um, stemming from early anthropology, even where, you know, these sort of like, like exactly you were saying, Luna, like these, these white people would come into these communities often of color and then, you know, take their stories, take their artifacts, take uh, whatever, and then parade around like they're the expert when those people didn't need you, man. Like you just didn't know you were dumb. Don't act like you're brilliant just because you wrote down some shit from people that already, you don't benefit them. I don't give a fuck about you. Like They didn't need you. And I just love that the film takes that weird, uh, that, that weird history of, of, of really privileged white people going into places. They shouldn't be into communities that don't need them. And then unlocking uh, something that they can't control because of their hubris, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think this movie really illustrates the fuck out of that because, like, mm-hmm. even though like the 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 film follows Helen, she doesn't. She's not the hero. She unlocks like a mythical folklore entity that'll gut you in a mirror, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and so her hubris is punished if you will. So I think it's implicitly a little more critical for its era than many other films are. So mm-hmm. for me, it's five out of five. Awesome. Plus Tony Todd just rocks. So if it's got Tony Todd in it, it's at least a four out of five. Baseline. <laughs> um, please come on the show, Tony. We love you. Yeah, no, it's interesting, Jeff, to your point. Um, because I was um, also going to say that it's almost recontextualizes like that whole um, that old horror trope of going to uh, places you're not supposed to be mm-hmm. and, you know, suffering very, you know, dire at, at you know, even consequences. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting to to kind of take that trope and almost subvert and dissect it in that kind of context. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, you had a little context that for, for the story for the first one, uh, um, would you want, like to mention that? Sure. So, um, there was actually some, um, quote unquote, uh, candy men. I mean, at least earned that monocle throughout the years, actually two men specifically. Um, the one is, is actually probably, we're all probably, uh, familiar with the story. Um, just not maybe mm-hmm. necessarily the person's name. So his name was uh, Ronald Clark O'Brien, and he got the nickname Candyman, or he's also sometimes referred to the man who killed Halloween. Um, he was an American man that was convicted of killing his eight-year-old son on Halloween 1974 um, by lacing um, pixie sticks with um, cyanide. Jesus. This um, was actually where we kind of got the um, poisoned candy. Check your candy because somebody might have poisoned it. So like this actually it it turned out that this father did this to his son to collect uh insurance 
money. So um, yeah, so that's that's probably the the, the where kind of like that urban legend um, kind of uh, sprung from. Yeah, because I remember you know growing up. I mean, we, I'm sure we all had the trick or treat warnings of like, oh, don't eat this, don't stop by this yeah. house, and, be wary of. Yeah, or even just like um, make sure an adult goes with you so that no one does anything sketchy or anything Mm -hmm. so creepy yeah so i mean we'll talk about more about how that kind of um parallels with the it it kind of it was kind of interesting because this parallel this um story um actually almost parallels more in line with the new um candy man versus the 92 version um Mm -hmm. there was also a man who had the moniker the candy man dean coral and um he was kind of known um because he would like kill adolescents i think mostly men he had an accomplice uh he earned the, the monocle the candy man because um he previously owned and operated a candy factory in houston heights um texas mm. and it's kind of worth noting that um both of these um men came from texas not that that's any kind of correlation, just an interesting um, coincidence. Apparently, we need to start messing with Texas. <laughs> yeah, there's something going on. Um, but yeah, left unchecked is bad. No, it's it's interesting. Like, yeah, the two parallel, um, cool. like this, um, kind of also t- took place um, around the same time. Um, Coral was kind of active in the 70s, and this happened. Um, the uh, Ronald o'brien thing happened in 74 so they were actually technically kind of active at the same time in texas so that is deeply unsettling uh yeah no it's kind of wild how like there was a lot of active serial killers in the 70s um like some even kind of semi overlapped in the same area which is kind of staggering when you think serial killers are kind of rare to begin with and then Mm -hmm. there's a concentrated amount of them especially in one area but Oh, believe me, I, I grew up in Washington, where yeah. you had like Gary Ridgway and, and Bundy and uh, like one or two more that were inc- unfortunately very fucking prolific at around the same time. Yeah, so it's kind of kind of wild. But anyways, like it's um, so I mean, the um, the former person that I mentioned is kind of where we really get that kind of um, like urban legend. But um Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's never actually been a case of like a razor blade and candy or anything like that. It's, I mean, it kind of goes it's an urban legend. Yeah, like it kind of goes to this thing where you're more likely to be the victim of um, a family member than you are like a stranger. <laughs> but yay, family. <laughs> <laughs> and how? Um, next episode on Humanoids of the Deep Dive, we analyze the true monsters just having a family. Just your family. <laughs> Watch out, y'all. Creepy. Um, you were born to a group of people that are biologically related. That's scary. <laughs> but um, you were bound to them forever. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of interesting. Like I, I remember seeing like some um like interviews with this Ronald Clark O'Brien guy, and they all the time kind of asked him like what he thought of his like um nicknames and how he kind of like they kind of credit him with like kind of ruining halloween or at least bringing back maybe like some of the darker um root elements of the the holiday so yeah Yeah, um yeah like he so um apparently he um also distributed this poison candy to his daughter and three other children um in an attempt to cover up his crime but 
because you know like i guess like he wanted to not look like he singled out the son in particular maybe but um they uh fortunately um were fine Okay, so good. yeah there's a happy ending and i hope that if he's still alive he gets a candy man visit he uh, <laughs> is well and thoroughly dead he died in 84 at 39 Ugh. good riddance yeah. um <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's creepy well okay so the uh, shifting forward before we um kind of open up things more thematically uh the 2021 candy man uh just came out a very short time ago uh it's still in theaters actually and so you folks at home can see it. I don't know when we're going to publish this, though. So asterisk may not be true in all times and regions. <laughs> <laughs> don't sue me for false asterisk. <laughs> um, that said, um, Luna, would you like to summarize the uh, the new entry into the Candyman territory? Sure thing. Um, so the new story picks up in present day Chicago. Uh Cabrini Green has been torn down 10 years ago, and the only remnants left are abandoned single-story units that are basically fenced off from the rest of the city. Much like these units, the story of Candyman persists in the Black community as a ghost story urban legend. I really liked that little parallel of, like, Mm -hmm. here's a ghost of Cabrini Green, and Candyman is still persisting in a small circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anthony, an artist struggling to find inspiration for an exhibition, is drawn to the folklore story and decides to create work that speaks on gentrification and white supremacy based on Candyman. The piece of work instructs the viewer to say Candyman five times into a mirror. And uh, from there, the legend gets a new wave in Chicago by word of mouth. Um, and what I found particularly interesting is that this new wave or I guess this new like word of mouth spread was really just into the white community is what this like movie mm-hmm. feels like. Like people in the black community already knew this ghost story. Mm-hmm. And then through this work of art at this exhibit, it's now like the white community is talking about it. And that's why it gets like all this notoriety mm-hmm. because white people are dying. And uh, mm-hmm. it becomes clear that the candy man, man myth is, like continuous uh, as the movie goes on. This particular candy man uh, is based on a man with a hook for a hand who was accused of injuring children with razor blades and candy, much like Mike was just talking about, um, and was hunted down and killed exactly like so many other black men in history, um, very brutally murdered. Uh, After his death, kids were still being hurt and the man was cleared for his crimes again, much like many other black men in history. So while this iteration of Candyman is similar, it is not Daniel Robitaille, which, you know, for those of us that have watched the film, I think that was a moment where I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, so however, the the legend remains the same. Candyman is conjured and gruesomely murders whoever summons him and the people around them. Anthony appears to be tied to Candyman in a more intimate way than anyone else. Uh, He eventually learns that he is the child that was stolen slash rescued by Helen Lyle uh, in the 1992 film. A man Mm -hmm. named Burke uh, attempts to sacrifice Anthony to the police to become a new vengeful Candyman. Uh, Brianna saves Anthony from Burke, only for Anthony to be shot dead by police in her arms. Um, And she's arrested, obviously. In the back of the police car, 
uh, Brianna summons Candyman. And he appears, but rather than killing the person who summons him, he kills all of the police who wronged him. The film ends mm-hmm. with Robitaille, Tony Todd, uh, appearing as Candyman and telling Brianna to tell everyone. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes from the film was in the trailer and makes a whole lot more sense after you see the film. Um, but Candyman isn't a he, he's the whole damn hive, is like way more powerful now that I've seen the film. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's like the synopsis of the new one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, just uh, thank you so much. Would you like to start off our reviews? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, as I mentioned, like the journey through the film, there was definitely that point in the middle where I was like, uh, what do you mean it's not Robitaille? <laughs> Who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Um, and then, uh, as it continued and just the entire last act was just like everything, like hand clap emojis, like, holy shit. Um, it blew my fucking mind. Uh, there's a lot to be interpreted and discussed in, from the last act. And I absolutely love this film. I will be watching it again and again. Um. Mm-hmm. And since I can't give it more than five, it's still five. Um, I do think that there are times that like take another, we'll take another watch to really appreciate. Um, there are certain scenes mm-hmm. where I was like, well, what that, that was an interesting choice, but it was never anything that I remembered much longer than that because the rest of the film was so compelling. And um, yeah, I'm very interested to watch it again because I do think that everything DaCosta chose to do was deliberate. And with um, with Jordan mm-hmm. Peele as one of those screenwriters along with her, and I forgot the third person because I'm a terrible person, um, They, I, I don't think there's any chance anything was just like a coincidence. Anything in this film. So I... Right. Um, I, yeah, I just really, I think it was a fantastic film. I think it's very timely. I think the themes are crucial, um, and uncomfortable, but therefore even more crucial. I'll leave it there for now since we'll talk about it more later. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for your review. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. We'll pause it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andre, uh, would you like to, to give your thoughts? So I, Pretty much, I just saw this actually yesterday, and I found it really, really engaging. Albeit, like, um, th- there's a lot of themes that are a little on the nose that are existent in both this and the '92 uh, Candyman. While I-, I love how the focus is uh, justifiably shifted to the the people immediately within the community that this legend uh, was birthed from. It does something truly like interesting and uh, captivating with it, but I, I think it mm-hmm. might have gotten a little uh, overstuffed with things that like a laundry list of things that they wanted to, to have happen. And I think it, it would work out a little bit better if there was maybe just like one more draft that being said, um, the specific world that it uh, builds on that um, 
follows uh, like Anthony around, almost nothing is uh, explicitly explained to the audience in the way that white academia does for you in 92. There is <laughs> there's much more of just like fucking around and finding out in this one than there is like explicitly just like telling you I found it I, I really appreciated like the mm-hmm. closest they got to that was when uh, uh what's her name's brother uh like turns out all the lights like I'm Brianna's gonna tell you the scary brother. story. Yeah. Brianna's brother, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah I, I really really focused most on the implications of the whole Candyman tapestry, uh, then it's like technical shortcomings, I think. With that, I, I would probably give it um, like a three and a half out of five stars. It's definitely one to revisit, especially alongside the 92 one, because I think I, I think the 1992 and this 2020 uh, kind of need to go hand in hand. Because mm-hmm. because of the legend and because of the characters that carry over, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see more of um, Anthony's mom. I, mm-hmm. I think we just only get one scene with her. I, I just wanted to spend more time with her. Yeah, th- there's just a whole lot going on in this one. That's fair. And also, for the record, release the Anthony's mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I I don't I don't want more of her. Like I thought that that scene was so powerful because we keep hearing about her mm-hmm. and we know who she is. And then she, he goes and sees her, and it was like, like, uh, like my little heart was like pitter patter. Like, oh my god, it's her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't like drawn out to where her character was just a plot device or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I just wanted to yeah. see it. Also, just one other scene with her, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because she's such a good actress. She's just she's great. amazing. Yeah, that's all. Um, I did love that it illustrated kind of the the difference. One of the differences between this one and the the first one, where the first one, like we were talking about, was like white academics that were like, we're just gonna parade around Candyman because we can just say Candyman at conference all day fucking <laughs> long, and it doesn't matter because we're coming as outsiders. Meanwhile, like when they're at the mom's house, she's like, "No, you don't fucking yeah. say that name." Like mm-hmm. we know better, especially the shit she's been through. We're not, yeah. and I just it it in just like one good moment, I'm like, "Yep, you just mm-hmm. hit the nail on the head." Um, thank you, Andre. I, I, absolutely, there's, there's so much to talk about. I appreciate it, um, Mike. I liked it, but I also thought that um, the screenplay was. Um, a little rough around the edges. Um, so I, well, first of all, um, what I really liked about it was um, it's really well directed visually. I think the movie is um, creative at times, but also just downright stunning. I, I was happy to mm-hmm. um, hear that the production designer on this um, is going to be working with um, DaCosta for the Marvels um, movie. Um, the production designer is is uh, Cara Brower, and um, fun fact: the cinematographer that did this is also supposedly working on the infamous Cocaine Bear movie. I don't know if y'all oh, heard good. about that. He's one of the oh. other Candymen. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's cool to know. Um, and yeah, uh, um, the sound design is amazing. The score um, is excellent. It made my skin crawl. Um, it was um, definitely a movie 
if you're gonna try to get back to the theaters, do it safely. But this is a good excuse as any to to do that because it definitely um, is almost overwhelming in terms of just production design, cinematography, visual style. Um, that was all great. And like I said, I thought the direction was was on mm-hmm. point. Um, I liked how it um, took a lot of what was problematic about the original um, film and kind of um, not only tweaked it and shifted that perspective, which was great, but also it uh, took a lot of um, tropes and kind of um, dissected and subverted those tropes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it was really like fascinating in the audience that I saw it with nobody, like there was no like screams or anything like not even like with some of the like, jump scares which unfortunately this movie kind of has but i will say like that that humor act really landed especially with a crowd like this movie's not a comedy obviously but it has like a nice yeah. biting mm-hmm. sense of humor mm-hmm. one thing that i liked was in the the um bathroom in the um with i guess like the teenage girls and they're at the mirror and the one uh character's like nope i'm not doing this like bye Mm-hmm. Yeah, not today she says not today and she runs out <laughs> yeah exactly and you're like it, it's it's like like i love stuff like that like it it's it's a little one the nose but like i like that it's um again it subverts your expectations and it's also yeah that's clever the um the african-american characters are 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 like yeah no we we don't do this shit you know, I mean, I, and I like that. That's, I mean, it's what I didn't really like about the the original film is it was trying to, well-intentioned, it, it tried to talk about racial topics, but then it also bucked up against how I felt like it felt kind of um, tone deaf with, with um, certain perspectives. So I liked how this movie, like, very... Uh, swiftly kind of realigned that mm-hmm. um, sure. with this pr- perspective. It, it always should have been. And I also think it was kind of great how you start the movie thinking that it's Anthony's story and it, and it is to a degree, but it's really Bri- Brianna's, you know, like yeah. it's, it's her story all along. I will say that I just felt like as clever and as good as the first um half is i feel like the second half like swiftly unravels with like plot and it's kind of like andre says it's it's almost like um it felt like it was racing to the conclusion so like things kind of had to take a back seat as far as like plot and plot points um like there was one character where <sighs> i'm trying to think of how to say this um without getting spoilery but like like okay like the the character the um they see the laundry mat mm-hmm. yeah Burke yeah William Burke yep so yeah um you think like okay like I was like really curious of like how that was tying in because you you even got like like flashbacks of his character and I'm like oh mm-hmm. wow that's awesome that's really cool and interesting like um someone else's like perspective on this thing and I was kind of curious how it was going to tie together and then it just felt like they made like a minor character suddenly super important and it seemed like it skipped some development or setup. It's like um, there was a scene that seemed to have been missing where like the trans, the transformation of his character went to an extreme. Cause like at first, like he's this person that serves as 
pretty much like the tropey expository dump of like knowledge and background history about Candyman, the legends, and mm-hmm. like the specific Candyman that he interacted with when he was a kid. Um, but there were like just really tiny, subtle hints showing that um, he was interested in uh, keeping it alive, but in terms of just making sure that everyone could access it rather than what he ended up doing in the finale, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. it seemed like a pretty big jump to just happen off screen. I think. Yeah, it was, it was like really confusing and sure. um, Yeah. I, I, and I just surmised that it just felt like maybe like there was um, maybe some things maybe got cut that maybe explained that better, or maybe it got cut. Yeah. Maybe just like, like the screenplay. Def- um, yeah. um, mm-hmm. um, I had the same reaction where I felt like it just kind of jumped to a certain scene pretty quickly where it didn't ruin my experience of the film for me. Cause intellectually it works, but it yeah. also felt like there was like a good, maybe five to 10 minutes that were in a different cut of the film. Mm-hmm. But, and and mm-hmm. also, I don't know if, if this, like if y'all felt like this, but I almost felt like there was certain things that like, I could very distinctly feel her vision, but then I also could feel like studio interference like yeah, if, yeah. If, and that's could have been what it was it kind of feels that's like likely it what it was yeah i i want to say that um it's likely a scene with um maybe anthony and william you know talking at the laundromat that could have yeah. taken place right before uh brianna comes and like has that moment locked in the office yeah um mm-hmm. uh, where william is insisting that there always needs to be a candy man and this is this is me just like trying to fill in the blank with uh, where his character goes, almost like insisting that there needs to be um, a vengeful side to the community that Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. enacts its own justice because it's not getting it from local law enforcement. It's not getting it from uh, government. It's, and it's not getting it from anyone who comes in to try to tell the story of um, their community as in the first film. Like it mm-hmm. is never beneficial for that community. Uh, and I think that's probably if that's what was largely in um, a segment that could have been cut out of this film. That's I think it was probably um, something that might have read to the studios uh, too threatening. Yeah, I that's mm-hmm. exactly how I took it. Like it's I imagine that Burke was someone that insisted that we need to be vengeful for everything that's been done to us. And in my head, which again is like me trying to fill in that, that blank. Uh, I, I could see that scene happening, but, and, and not that I would agree with the studio cutting it um, because fuck that, but also like, I would be worried that people would see that and be like, oh, it's so tropey, uh, social justice, blah. Like, you know, and they're already that way about the films. Like, oh my God. They are already like that about the film. So if there was an additional <laughs> scene, like of someone being like, nah, we need to like yeah. fight yeah. back, yeah. Um, I think people would get really yeah. pissy. Yeah. Um, and fuck them because yes. they're wrong. But, but also like, 
it I think the film would have drawn even more criticism than that than it's sure. getting now. And I want her to be successful. Right. At yeah. the end of the day. But I think it's like the same problem that you have with like the antagonist of the Black Panther film, uh Killmonger. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. okay, Killmonger from one perspective, and I'm and I'm saying this as a very white gentleman who knows a lot about history, is correct. Like you yes. have this like <laughs> this this African country that's like been centuries beyond Europe and whatever in America and, and the US that is uh four centuries and could have righted all the wrongs in the world and sat it the fuck out because they were fine. And yep. mm-hmm. he wants to use that technology to basically distribute vengeful justice. And he's made the villain by the arbitrary plot device that they make him like killing people. They just like duct tape it to the character like mm-hmm. and and like, mind you, the CIA used that and made him that way. Let's forget about that. Just duct tape it to the <laughs> guy who's obviously the one that's accurate about shit. Mm-hmm. From one perspective, you could see him as the protagonist minus the arbitrary thing. They duct taped it to make it safe and make him clearly the villain. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a similar type of thing where like that framework is there. At least they didn't fuck it up by adding nonsense. But I think that they it may. Yeah, maybe I could see it being a little too close for comfort in a draft of the. Film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just felt like I mean, just from like a kind of basic story kind of aspect, it fell a little short. Especially when yeah. you consider the fact that you have three writers, um, like including Jordan Peele, which like I am a huge fan of his work. I mean, I even really like um, I feel like I'm an us apologist um, also. <laughs> so, there's no need to apologize for that movie. Well, yeah, you would think that. But like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I know that I there's that movie. some people that like um, I don't think it's as good as Get Out, but I really like it. And I think it's really brilliant in its own way um but yeah yeah Yeah. i I can't feel like i can truly compare that because they they do vastly different things it's like an apples and two very different films oh yeah yeah and like i am i'm crazy excited for nope um which is so funny because that's literally anytime my husband sees a trailer for his movies it's just he only he doesn't like those like I don't know, like I, they're very graphic, um, violent wise, and like that. My husband doesn't like that. So anytime nope. he <laughs> sees something like that, he's like, "Nope, I'm out." Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, um, but it's like funny. Like I was like, "Yeah, he's got a new movie, and it's just called Nope." And he's like, "Oh, that's exactly what I say." Well, at least right. like, make him watch the trailer um, and see if he but says I th- Nope to Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I almost have him worn down. Where I think that. Um, I could get him to watch Get Out oh, just because yeah. it's only like really graphic towards so the end. Good. Yeah, it's more suggestive in that way than it is like fully like full on graphic. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, the hardest part to watch in Get Out is where the um, antagonist lady whose name I'm forgetting yeah. uh, eats the cereal and drinks the milk separately. That's <laughs> honestly the big exactly. part that I'm just like, oh, no, fuck that. Something's wrong. Uh um thank um, you mike well, uh, how many stars would you give it ultimately did you say oh um i would say 
Um, probably a three and a half out of um, five. Like I, I'm more like that. I like it. It's just it felt like there were some things that maybe could have used some like some um like maybe like a tighter narrative line. Sure. But I mean, gosh, the direction is so great. The um just visually, I mean, some of that like reminded me of like um like Bava or Argento esque kind of with mm-hmm. like the lighting. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure y'all would probably know the scene mm-hmm, I'm talking yeah. about in particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, doesn't that seem seem like something straight out of like Suspiria? Yeah, and, yeah. And I, and, I, and I love it. Yeah. So yeah, that's my that's my rating. Dig it. I I waver a lot with uh, I I've been back and forth several passes of how many stars I would give it. And uh, okay, so first of all, I love it. I really really enjoyed it. I love how it organically evolves the mythos of the the first one. It takes it in new directions in a way that I think is real. It really honors the first film and, and carries it forward. And we'll have some time to talk about the comparative themes in a, in a bit. Love the cinematography. I love that those upside down shots of where it's like a moving shot through upside down Chicago. And mm-hmm. like, I love Chicago. I love the fuck out of that. I really liked a lot of the the dialogue and the writing and the, the, the performances all landed for me. My biggest issue is kind of similar where it felt like we just talked about it. Um, but I remember watching anything like, oh, we're where, why? And I, I felt like I jumped ahead very briefly at a very important moment. But it, it intellectually works for me, so it doesn't ruin the film at all. But it still feels like we're waiting for the Anthony's mom cut. <laughs> and... <laughs> um, to kind of fill in a couple blanks. But overall, I loved it. I have to say, Luna, I was I was audibly laughing during your review because I remember thinking when they had the other Candyman and it all works, it wraps up nicely with a tight bow at the end. Mm-hmm. But I remember feeling the whole time like that is that is the wrong fucking Candyman. What are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, you mean Daniel Robitaille? Who the fuck is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no. Which, fun fact... Uh, apparently at one time they pitched a Candyman versus Leprechaun film. Oh my God. Yeah. And Tony uh, Todd was literally like, I'm not going to No, I'm not going to yeah. be part of that. Bless I, you, I admire that spirit, but yeah, I mean like that, it would just be like the second and third movie Candyman where it's just like, he's just there to kill people. And then that's it. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, Oh, that's not even like in the spirit. Like, like if you want like a Leprechaun versus Wishmaster film, I'm all down. But like, oh, yeah, those are like thematically not even almost the same. But this one, uh, I feel like that was an aside, but but I feel like the film themes really are a little blunt for this one. But I still liked it and liked what they did. And I felt like the like I enjoyed the bluntness where they're just like, no, this is what it is. Fuck you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I admire that a lot. And it worked for me. Um, so I'd say uh, I waver between a four and a four and a half. Um, I think right now I'm landing on four and a half, but I got to see it again and see if, if, if another watch would patch up some of, you know, the kind of like structural issues that I had maybe, mm-hmm. or if I'd still feel the same way, but you know, so I think for, uh, I'll land on a four and a half because I really enjoyed what it did a whole bunch it evolved the mythos. It, it, you know, it hit its themes with a blunt bat, but I feel like sometimes that's really warranted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I dug it. I think Love any it. subtlety in, in regards to themes in this film at this time would have been so soft and insulting, I think. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. like we're past the time yeah. for subtlety. Yeah, we need to be loud and mm-hmm. blunt about it. Yeah, and like this film, I mean, I haven't given it like tons and tons of thought because again, I've only seen it once and it was recent, but like... There's a lot, yeah. Yeah, but like this film has something that many other films that talk on these themes doesn't, which is like a glimmer of hope, like a hopeful Mm -hmm. look at today's situation for Mm -hmm. Black people. And I don't know that it's a call, a different kind of call to action than uh, what Burke was going for, but I just think that when you're watching this film and you're like, this is the cycle, and then it takes the same cycle and is like, well, this is your protection. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Nobody said that before. Goddamn. (laughs) Yeah, I love that scene where she was like calling him in the the cop car. And you're like, is this a good idea? And then he comes out and he's just like, hmm, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I also loved that what they portrayed like the, the how they t- portrayed the uh the cops that killed him as just like ominous shadows in the same way they did mm-hmm. the ones who killed the Candyman yeah. earlier in the film yep. because it dehumanized them and disempowered them and made them monstrous and I thought that was fucking boss as hell. Yep. yep. Um I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's that. so it's so accurate to how many people feel about the police and have felt about the police yeah. for a very long time. They are monstrous. Yeah. They are shadows that cannot be reasoned with. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. You are helpless in their presence. And that is true for me. And that is true for a lot of people in this world. And I think, I feel like this movie was like, yeah, we see you. Mm-hmm. We, we know. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know um, not to believe the point. Cause there's so many fucking tragic stories and stuff that, our real life and we don't need it. I mean, that would be an entirely another show and it would last like seven fucking hours uh, to do it justice. At least it just reminds me uh, to illustrate that point in a way that didn't end tragically, but was still implicitly tragic. I remember this like trending video where it was just this like little 12 year old black boy somewhere in the U S there was like the, the, the home camera peering outward for security uh, was watching just play basketball in by himself, mm-hmm. a kid, you know, in, in his parking, uh, in his driveway, uh, you know, like by his parked car in the driveway. And you just watch him like he pulls the ball in. He just casually like this is an everyday thing, turns or turns around and drops behind the parked car to hide. And you don't know why. Mm-hmm. And then this cop car just drives through the neighborhood and he waits a couple seconds, gets out and starts playing basketball again. I'm like, fuck, that is. Yeah. Yep. No, no tragic ending, but God damn, that is just the most, both implicit. I don't need to tell fucking you. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to tell anyone at home. It's just like, it overwhelmed me when I saw it because the thing that really got me was it was such an everyday thing. He wasn't even panicked. It was casual. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, okay, well, I'm making the coffee, pouring in a to-go cup. Like, and yeah, fuck, it's like that's an instinctive way of just like not being seen yeah you're but you're safer if you're not seen yeah of well, course yeah especially not by the police right uh, exactly who yeah. will always come up with a reason to mess with you like just just to come over and notice that you're doing something all they have to be is in a bad mood or a weird yep. mood or tired or hungry or whatever all they have yeah. to be is in a little bit of an off mood and you could 
be their next bullshit. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where in the country either. Cause like not to belabor the point, but like California is, has this reputation as a liberal bastion, but like in fucking LA and it's not better mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not better anywhere. It's not better in Washington. It's not better in Oregon. Nope. Anyway, not to belabor Moving, the point, yeah. but I love that. But yeah, th- there is a moment in the new Candyman where uh, Anthony actually does have that that moment where I think he's near the church or something taking pictures. Mm-hmm. This is like early on, mm-hmm. and then he hears like you know a, a cop siren. Uh, yeah. and he's like about to cross into like a clearing where there's a fence where you can see through to the street or something, mm-hmm. and then he just yeah. like instinctively steps back because he knows that someone's going to ask him, like, what are you It'd doing here? Yep. Yeah, and then yeah. he doesn't want that. Right, and right as he does that, that's when Burke approaches him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because he's in the um the courtyard, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's in the, the Cabrini Green, like the remnants. Well, I mean, let's just kind of, we're, we're organically kind of talking about themes anyway, So, and that's the end of our reviews. Is there anything, uh, especially that we haven't talked about, that's that's uh, been really pressing on anyone to discuss? Um, I, I think one of the aspects that I thought was really interesting was in the new film that they it was kind of a satirical look at art and elitist art um, kind of world. Mm-hmm. which um, I, I think is kind of like interestingly weaved into the narrative, but also kind of felt a little out of place. But I th- I thought it was also kind of super interesting too. So I'm like curious what you all felt, how you felt about that. Yeah, the the art focus was, I think, a little like it, it was well used on the surface. Like it did provide some some intriguing, like striking visuals for the film to start playing out but for me i think it ultimately achieves what the um academic shop talk does in the first film where Mm -hmm. the only people who can truly appreciate this thing in academia or in high art are the exact people who are making it so it's like an echo chamber and i don't think it really focuses enough on showing how closed-minded those communities are yeah it, it just it seems like more of a backdrop to me than a theme that is like fully fleshed out which was one of the things i was a little um disappointed in in the film but yeah especially with anthony being a burgeoning artist and like getting his his gallery stuff out there but like apparently he's coming out of like a slump which is only really kind of alluded to once where like i think like his friend or someone who runs the gallery like he comes to him with some like new paintings but it's like this is the old you not the new you like i need the anthony of the future and then like i don't even know what the past anthony was um so i think that's really interesting i don't i didn't see it as a theme uh necessarily either i did see it as a backdrop but i I thought that it was an opportunity for the filmmakers to discuss gentrification and represent Mm -hmm. it visually because all of those modern works are what exactly what gentrification looks like. I'm living in one right now. Um, I look like mm. I'm, I live in a building that looks like it should belong in some sort of weirdo, you know, artistic modern art gallery or some shit, um, which is a problem, but Hey, at some point I'll buy a house. Um, but mm-hmm. like, I did think, I didn't think that there was necessarily a reason to dive into the, um, art world and and the pretentiousness of that world 
in a way that would serve the story other than to say that this is a majority white world. They have exactly the same feelings toward poor people and black people as pretty much every other industry. Mm-hmm. And they think that they have a right to be here um, by destroying the slums that they already made. Um, right. And so other than that, I didn't really see why diving into that theme would have been helpful to the story. Uh, I do think that like when it came to his art, Anthony's art, when you see it, it looks like social justice art about black men and imprisonment and black pain and persecution and all of that um and self-harm and so like those themes are in the in the versions of art that we saw in his studio at the time that he was like well here's what you used to do and here's what you do now and it's like the same Mm -hmm. um and then he's like give me something new and again that like art being set in this fine art world, he was able to be like, well, I want to talk about white supremacy and gentrification. And the guy even like adjusts his, like edits his, his language or whatever for him, the gallery owner. And then we see him create this work based on Candyman that does exactly what he said he was going to do. um, And isn't received well, obviously, because they only want challenging art that is like fined down around the edges and really palatable for everyone and so yeah i i i hear what you're saying like i think that yeah of course it it definitely was not flushed out but i don't know that it would have been useful necessarily yeah i mean just based on like how many different directions uh the narrative goes from there because it seems like it's very focused in its portrayal of an artist Mm-hmm. looking for inspiration wanting to to showcase this aspect of life that he knows needs amplification and uh attention towards mm-hmm. and acknowledgement it, it just seems like it kind of takes a hard turn away from that at a certain point where um normally other narratives would probably focus a little bit more on um like the work almost mm-hmm. Like sort of how yeah. um, the first one was focusing more and more on the work for Helen mm-hmm. until the whole Candyman thing made it impossible for her to focus on things because she was being pursued mm-hmm. by law enforcement. Right. Well, that also happens in this one, too, doesn't it? Like he continues to dive down this Candyman inspiration to where he's painting the the the, you know, beat up and really messed up faces of all of the different people who have died in the same way that Robitaille has and that his Candyman has until he's so distracted by losing, like by Candyman taking him that he can't continue. So it seems similar to me, but I I totally respect your opinion. And I I think it might also just be um, just fleshing out a a bridge between um, the edge of like, when he starts exhibiting like his uh his mm-hmm. Candyman uh piece like with the the mirror and the really really cool thing that he did beyond the mirror which yeah. is something that um I thought that almost everyone just immediately discounted which was mm-hmm. completely unfair and like I think that was like all the faces yeah yeah and that was after he talked to Burke yeah. about the story right yeah 
Because that's who they were. Yeah. So this was all based on the information that he had like gathered from that. Gotcha, gotcha, well, gotcha. I think one thing that's weird though is that the, the art in the film is my read of it is it's kind of just a MacGuffin that animates the plot, mm-hmm. you know? Like it's yeah, it's not really the point of anything. It's just the venue through which the story and its themes unfold, and it's something the main character is in pursuit of, so it animates him, but it doesn't really matter per se. Yeah. yeah. Other than to animate the story. Yeah, it serves as a, a launching point, if anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's just my read. I'm sure there's tons of other reads. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no that makes a lot of sense to me. I do think that like something that uh, Anthony did in his piece uh, dictated the rules of uh, of how like Candyman and the bees interact, which is a lot different than the mm-hmm. first one. Uh, and that's that they're actually on the other side of the mirror. That was so cool. Mm-hmm. And like that was, yeah, it's like um started making me think about like if there is a mirror world that exists on the other side, like he has a few interactions um with that specifically. Mm-hmm. And like the little the bees just like trying to get through or tapping against the mirror um was so, so effective. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially in the art installation uh, gallery. Mm-hmm. The fact that Candyman exists on the other side, but is completely invisible, except like only visible through uh, reflections. Yeah, like like in that scene in the art gallery where he's like coming through and slicing the art, and you can only see him in the reflection, was pretty fucking great. Oh yeah, so fucking cool. yeah, where he's slicing the the projector screen or whatever. Yeah, that yeah, was, really was amazing. Like I loved the idea that. Candyman is trapped, is this ghost trapped on the other side, and you mm-hmm. give him a bridge to act in our world, but he that's that's his domain is there. Like, mm-hmm. ah, that's so cool. Yeah, you really get <laughs> yeah. that. See, like another thing that uh, uh, specifically I kind of alluded to in my review, but that I really want to just briefly mention is I I thematically love how it took the first one was a, a really good nuanced develop like folkloric development of how Danny Robitaille, Candyman, exists as an act of personal trauma and personal vengeance, mm-hmm. right? And I loved how it expanded it more to be like a sort of almost generational collective tragedy and and um, vengeance. It just like expanded it deeper and wider. And I, I thought that that was a really organic way to do it. Yeah. Because these tragedies are so widespread, mm-hmm. it doesn't just happened to one person in the 1890s and then we just talk about it for like hundreds of yeah. years mm-hmm. it, it's like continuing to happen and like all of these people have the same if not vengeful just persistent natures about their spirits almost in a revenant way yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah i yeah. love that i love what did there i thought that one of the most powerful parts of the film was that little epilogue um mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. where it just explicitly says like that this is still happening and this is collectively our trauma mm-hmm. and what are we going to do about it kind of thing mm-hmm. and like when i when they were talking about the different stories of people over time i guess not talking about <laughs> there's no dialogue there's no there's yeah. no speech um but i mean you can identify every single one of those people from stories over the years and there are so many left out Mm -hmm. and i think that 
was really striking to me as well mm -hmm. of like oh my gosh they didn't even mention these people and these people and, and this little boy and that little mm -hmm. boy and it's like it was so heartbreaking yeah. to watch but then like because you just saw Tony Todd say tell everyone it was like I don't know like I felt energized and yeah you know hopeful yeah. that and that I'm watching this film in a in a movie theater like this isn't some documentary buried at the bottom of Netflix's like catalog this right. is a full-blown movie talking about all of these things Universal Studios yeah. international release yeah like saying like these things keep happening and and yeah they need to fucking stop yeah. and again I don't think that there was like intentionally a call to action or at least certainly not legally <laughs> would they want to admit that there was a call to action um but i think that little epilogue serves as a really powerful mm -hmm. tool to bring everybody up to the same place yeah at the same time in in current day right. and in current pain and tragedy i do feel like my partner brought this up but i was like but we agree that I don't think that Brianna's name was yeah. Brianna for by yeah. accident, you know, yeah. like it's just all so visceral and relevant and we've all seen it with yeah. our eyes at this yeah. point. And then I, 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 just to add to the, the discussion of the epilogue, I, I would say like, I hundred percent agree with you legally. They're not saying there should be a call to action in the real world mm -hmm. in a Candyman style way. No, they're not. Not officially, but, um, yeah. but, right. but it, it does, uh, in the film world, I took that tell everyone combined with the epilogue to be like an expression of like the, 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 the people that have been victimized by this set of you know, racist social tendencies, right? Like there are... Mm -hmm. There, the, we only see, we, you know, we see that there are multiple Candymen that emerge from this like type of phenomena over the years, right? Like, and mm -hmm. it's like a commitment to make more and to spread it wider. And now they're not just killing people for saying the name, and it's like willy nilly. It's like justice, vengeance. It's now it's a tool. Yeah, now it's a tool for Black right. people to protect themselves. It's like a it's like a ghost story the ghost story I've always wanted to hear that is like, there's this guy that's going to yeah. protect you if you're ever in a lot of trouble and then you see no way out. If you say his name five times in a mirror, just find a reflective surface. He's yeah. going to come save you. And I'll be like, oh. on a cop car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you're in a cop car or whatever. Like, I love that. She's like, doesn't matter. Turn the mirror towards me. And he's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then like, like, um, I, I love that. Because I interpreted like the epilogue as being like they're building a fucking army. Yeah. Right. And do I want to see now that we can talk about spoiler stuff? Do I want to see yeah. an army of Candyman like going to fucking town for justice? Okay. I yeah. will watch that movie on repeat for a yeah. week. Like 100%. That gets six stars from me. Like I, I want to see the, the boy on the bike. I want to see him just like speed by and place so many throats like dragging that <laughs> hook yeah. along with his supernatural bike like rampaging good god son do your business do what is yours to do like this is something where like beautiful you could do a follow-up and like lean into that you could make you could give it some like gremlins 2 energy 
the floodgates are open at this point. Like there, <laughs> there's a candy. There's a whole. There's a cavalcade of candy men. Candy squad. <laughs> candy squad. <laughs> candy squad. <laughs> um, and like with uh, the advents of like modern technology, like you have a reflective surface in your pocket all the time, and like all you need to do is just look into your, you know, your phone yep. turned off, and then just say it, uh, your and dark... then like boom, oh, yeah, he's there or she's there or they're there, you know, whatever. Um, or like a makeup mirror, you know, like oh, that was a beautiful moment mm-hmm. on the film too. Oh yeah, the way he was just like floating so slowly towards that was uh used it was utilized so neatly yes i don't want to like suggest that there's an avenue for this to get a little goofier at the expense of what this film is saying um but like as more of like a um an illustration of much needed uh gleeful justice yeah that like like cathartic in every way but without it feeling like it's being cheapened which i realizes probably a hard order like a, a tall order for uh right but if anyone's gonna do it video game maybe video game and you great. could choose which candy man you're gonna be <laughs> choose yeah. your fighter exactly <laughs> like, i'm gonna be down robotai like no i'm the kid on the bike just go around <laughs> slashing people's throats yeah but i mean if anyone's going to attempt that uh i think this team is the, the one to do it specifically mm-hmm. with jordan peele being like the amplifier behind it if not like also co-writer and uh you know yeah. with his monkey paw studios yeah yeah i mean i he i'm so happy he was involved because he could get the word out yeah. so that nia da costa could yes. be appreciated it worked a little too well because people were thinking it was his film yeah yeah it did work a little <laughs> part too of that's well. the marketing campaign they were literally yeah. like even a week before i noticed there were marketing videos where the, the still image before you click on the video was him talking about it and i'm like that's why man god damn it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I'm like but that yeah. but you know i love it I, I would love to see like a sequel where it opens up and like it's like 15 years and there's chaos because the population <laughs> is literally down <laughs> yeah well Actually, did, isn't it true? I may be misspeaking here, but didn't Candyman? Isn't this the biggest box office for a film directed by a black woman ever? That is correct. I think so. Yeah, I haven't verified Especially it but for yeah. a film that's been like delayed. Um, yeah, like it was supposed to come out and released in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like delayed because of pandemic, and like oh, we're going to release it this day, and then that day ended up not happening and then like mm-hmm. i think this is the second time the film has moved its release slate but mm-hmm. even still like being theaters only cause i don't think it's on anything else other than physical theaters uh it's yeah. still yeah, doing this it, well so the budget was 25 million and so far it's made 50 million that's oh, great great job wait um i also wanted to talk about um an aspect that I, I've kind of seen headlines about, um, but I, I don't think it's um, talked about enough. And, you know, it's kind of an arena where I feel like I have a justified opinion, which is like the queer characters and mm-hmm. how yep. kind of amazing and awesome they are in this. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And so as, you know, a queer person and the limited kind of uh, representation that we get in um, horror movies is uh, 
not great. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, one or more, if you have a, a queer person or any kind of LGBTQIA, um, you you per, um, they always die some kind of horrible death. And yeah. this didn't happen. And I, I, th- I thought that was mm-hmm. amazing. And I loved it. And I was like, um, please take note that I want to see more of that also. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought that the brother's character, Brianna's brother, I keep forgetting his name. Uh, Troy. Troy, yeah. Troy, thank you. <laughs> Troy yeah. was a fucking delight. Oh, like, God. this film would mm-hmm. not have been the same without him. Yeah. He was, to me, it read very authentic. It read non tropey, non like stereotypey, just beautiful like humor that was that i see all the time in my club like all the time yeah yeah it's like real and i just i I appreciate that so much absolutely like like literally i want to watch it again just to to get all his quotes down because he was so quotable in every scene like i love that one like black people don't need to be summoning shit i'm just like that is the most real talk And uh, I, I think it was the first scene that he was in in the film where, like, uh, he and his boyfriend are over to meet um, Anthony. Like, they're joking about the wine, about like, oh, it's yeah. like I don't, I don't like this wine. <laughs> like, oh, so would you prefer real. the Moscato? And like, oh, <laughs> like, wow, that, this guy. That is conversation literally happened a week ago <laughs> at a Black Girl Magic drag show. <laughs> it was like, they were like, oh, is that the Pinot Noir? I was like, yeah, it's this one. They were like, oh. And then the other one was like, no, 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 it's fine. And they were like, no, it's not. And I was like, I love you both. <laughs> You're so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm glad you mentioned that because Troy was my favorite character in the whole fucking thing. <laughs> like, yeah. And like, I, I was kind of uh, not sure because like, I, I've seen the Candyman trailer probably way more times than I ever wanted to, uh, which mm. honestly, I think that the Candyman, the trailer for this, uh, more or less kind of like ruins the the journey of the film in some ways where like i since i've seen it like half a dozen times maybe a little bit more um just being at the theater and like there not being a lot of trailers to go around these days um it sort of tells you exactly the trajectory of it but that aside the lines from troy are cut in such a way that it, i was a little worried that maybe he was written in as a um and this is just from the trailer uh as like some sort of comic relief character that we needed to cut to or something but mm-hmm. thankfully he was not that at all and he was actually uh one of the main like voices of wisdom in the film yeah like he knew exactly what was going on at all times yeah like he knew the legend he knew what not to do like he was like an oracle of knowledge yeah he was like the the, the good voice of reason versus um Coleman Domingo's character who had he had knowledge but he had a goal and I think that it rings true like you hear this all the time in in communities in any marginalized community that like folks in marginalized communities just know we have access to humor in a way as a survival tactic that is just part of who we are and what we do and has nothing like it's not there's no effort put forth and it's not like he was there like cracking jokes like let me tell you the one about like it was just him 
and it yeah. was perfect. It was just like yeah. him being authentic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of I, I I hate to be like Debbie Downer, but it, it's it's kind of very telling when queer representation is so not great that I was elated that they had two gay characters that were not only not only not the butt of the joke but like lived throughout the entire film and like had super well adjusted lives and and they weren't stereotypically written either yeah um so i feel like hope i mean i doubt it but i hope that studios will maybe take note of that and be like do better please Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and yeah uh, probably not but um i mean that I can help. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it that's I think we're all hoping for for portrayal of mm-hmm. all marginalized folks. It's like please do it better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Stop tokenizing everyone. Yep. Absolutely. And for the record, I I hope that the Troy character gets to become a Candyman that gets so voluntarily and is not because of tragedy. I don't want anything bad to ever happen ever, to that character, ever. but I just want him to have a hook <laughs> and be just awesomely doing cool shit. <laughs> Just like giving people snacks exactly. and high five. Like good wine. <laughs> he needs some candy. He shows up with a great wine recommendation. Yeah. It's like, oh, I didn't know. Would you prefer the Buscato? Yeah. He's, he's the candy man that actually gives you candy. Right. Yeah. Like after all the traumatic shit happens and Tony Todd comes and like destroys the, your abusers exactly. or whatever. Then he comes out and he's like, here's some wine and like, some no, cheese no, no. Sit down. and a sit little down. charcuterie. <laughs> And let's just let's just sit let's just sit down for a second. Exactly. Like yes. <laughs> I mean that, that would be perfect for like a hungry grab a Snickers and he's, he's like a full size Snickers like oh shit thanks man. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> really needed this. Love it. Um. Cool. Well, I I feel like we uh we've talked about so much and this was such a good discussion. Uh, yeah. Um. I think yeah. I I it was uh, great to just hear everybody's kind of opinions on it. Like I you know like I said I I. I I definitely really liked it, and I thought that it had a very strong creative bent to it. It's just I don't know. I, I it would be really interesting to see like if anything comes out about like was there like an original version of this that was maybe like altered or different? Because I just like like I I know we talked about this, but it kind of feels like it. Maybe yeah. I'd be curious to check out the, the script. I'd be down for a director's cut. Yeah. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Too. So uh, Nita Costa, hopefully it lands for you, and then please and, and then come you. on the show. Yeah, and then just make it as murdery as you want, and we'll back you up. It's cool. Just bring Tony Todd, give us the scripts, and uh, maybe we can do a read through. Yeah, because you know, like when when to, oh man, that would be good. With Tony Todd. Oh my if God. I could just hear Tony Todd reading anything, it could be like just anything. A birthday card. <laughs> <laughs> my note from like you know, science class, like anything. I'd love to hear it. Seriously. Like, I mean, I am am definitely like the type, I'd like to think that I would survive a horror film, right? But if Tony yes. Todd showed up and was like, <laughs> be my victim, I'd be like, well, okay. Like, sure. I planned on living, but. I'd be like, you make, you make a reasonable, <laughs> a reasonable point. Exactly. <laughs> I can't really argue with you there. How compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Would you like the right side of my throat or the left side? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My only caveat is like, just don't make me like a honeycomb man because like I don't want bees to live in me. But then like everything else. OK. But if they could somehow like if I could feed the bees with my body somehow, like get all the sugars out of it or whatever, 
go for it. Yes. <laughs> um, Whatever is useful to you, good sir. I will say it was kind of awesome. I got to meet him at a convention in two different um, occasions. That's and cool. I, he's super nice. I'll have to find a picture of me standing next to him. I, I am like completely, <laughs> I, I look very short compared comparatively obvious obviously no. um but it's it's amazing he's a big guy yeah um yeah. i'm like five eight uh so not very tall pretty average i guess but like yeah he's like uh just yeah, super stature. intimidating like intimidating but just such such a nice very yeah. well-spoken amazing. that's what my partner says yeah. too he's like tony todd is the yeah, nicest I actually person met him as well. i've ever had, talked to at a convention and i'm just like why does everybody meet him but me oh. <laughs> i oh I, I i i met him too outside of the horror noir premiere oh mm. nice oh um i i caught him you went to that premiere i went Can to that we, premiere i'm so fucking jealous go back in time and, and bodies this is before the show obviously uh but um the fun thing was i really wanted to meet tony todd because he's a goddamn legend but i didn't get a chance to because and he was out of there so quickly afterwards i was just bummed right uh. so i was going to my car and i saw him across the street from where i happened to be parked just like silhouetted just by himself oh my God. guy and so i was like thank you uh all candy man of all realms for this opportunity <laughs> or Cthulhu, whoever i have to think um or death maybe we're homies now and so like i went across the street and i was just chatting with him he's just like the, just the, he's so nice and i you know mentioned my Aww. filmmaking plans and he was super supportive and just a great like dude Yay! Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it's great. When I was rewatching the 1992 one, uh, I, I was rewatching with like a friend and and with my wife, and she brought up after the movie was over, and like I understand how like he's supposed to be taken as like this intimidating, possibly threatening force to those who you know say the name five times in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every time I hear his voice, it's just like. This makes me so happy. I just like exactly yeah. like it, it makes me happy answer. too. And like it doesn't creep me out in the same way that I think if no one has ever heard of Tony Todd before, like seeing uh Candyman for the first time or something like that, maybe without that context, they wouldn't have uh been as like just pleased to like see and hear him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think my first Tony Todd. Uh, in media is seeing him in Deep Space Nine uh, as an old Jake Sisko in like a, a really, really fucking heartbreaking episode. Like you don't even have to know anything about Deep Space Nine other than like just be kind of mildly aware of Star Trek things. But just like watch that episode. Uh, I think it's called like The Visitor. And it's like it will it makes me cry every damn time. And like just having him uh like recollect everything that's happened in the past and then mm-hmm. i mean we have like avery brooks and tony todd it, it's such a great um piece i don't know it has nothing to do with candy man it's it's actually like more heartstrings kind <laughs> of stuff but i just I, I have to bring up star trek love it <laughs> it's true you are contractually <laughs> contractually obligated it's in the handbook um uh-huh. so i do i it sounds like we may be wrapping this up soon, but I do have a 
question for everyone and Fantastic. it may be a tough question so you can feel free jeff to just like not okay mm-hmm. go for it <laughs> i'm intrigued <laughs> <I'm> so- <laughs> specifically now i'm intrigued <laughs> well so we were talking about get out earlier and jordan peele and you know the work that he's been doing i think we're all fans of his work like he's mm-hmm. a very powerful storyteller um get out was pretty iconic when it came out like yeah it remains so to this day very relevant and powerful talking about really like themes that we don't talk about and you just mentioned horror noir and i was just thinking about how he has said more than once that get out was not made for a white audience it was made for black people it's a horror movie for black people Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that people can't appreciate it from sure. wherever you are. Um, but the, the story is for black people, which is why like it was so fucking groundbreaking mm-hmm. uh, to so many people when it happened. And I get the sense that Candyman 2020 or 2021, the new one is the same way. It feels like the story is really for like for black people mm-hmm. that can be enjoyed by others. But my question to you is more you all um, as, as white dudes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> I'm wondering like, how, what was your reaction when you heard that about get out and what it, how does that impact or change at all? How you view movies like that even though they're very very new and you know Mm -hmm. there aren't very many people doing that but like does it change anything for you like how what is your reaction i've always been curious like how white people react to a film being made for a population that they're not part of um yeah i so i don't know if you mind i i if you mind if i kick it off um that's a great question. I I still love it. I still love those movies. Um, I definitely, I think um, I'm definitely a hundred thousand percent like we need more movies that are, are for and for and by, you know, Af- Af- African-American creators. I mean, that's um, like, that's awesome. I'm glad that the narrative's um, shifting like that. Uh, it's way, way, way overdue. Um I mean, it's kind of how I feel about like queer representation in cinema. Like, I I kind of think of it like um, from a queer perspective, in the terms of I kind of have to reconcile, especially like older movies, especially um, movies like that are kind of overtly homophobic. Um, it's kind of a reminder that these movies were not for me, or not made for me. Um, so it's kind of awesome to see um, movies that actually have better, uh, you know, queer characters. So I, even though I can't put myself in that um, specific um, sh- uh, shoes per se, um, I can kind of understand it at least a little bit from that perspective. Um, so I think mm-hmm. it's kind of great uh I think it's I think mm-hmm. it's amazing actually that that you know we have films that are um you know made for um 
African-American audiences. And I, I think that's awesome and amazing and, and long overdue. I don't, I mean, like, it, it doesn't take away from my appreciating them. I guess I'm curious, like, especially as people that watch a lot of films and you have mm-hmm. some amount of authority when it comes to, you know, sharing your reviews and stuff like that. But even even leaving that part out, just as a white person yeah. watching these films and, and being part of an audience um, for, of something that is not necessarily aimed towards you as the... Right. The, we are not the target demographic. Yeah. Right. Like, how... How do, does that impact how you watch a film? If so, how? I feel, like, I feel like it makes me, if anything, like more charitable because I understand that there are things that I, d- I don't understand or that I might understand only intellectually, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I spent a fuckload amount of time learning about history and social issues and shit as like a grad student in a sociology department and doing critical research and stuff. And, and so I at least have some intellectual understanding of many things, but it's only intellectual, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not lived experience. It's not uh, that sort of like deep knowledge that you have, obviously when you're from that community or when you have that history. And so I still can, I try and just be charitable if I don't understand something and assume it's just me, you know, Mm -hmm. when I'm reviewing, for example, like when it's, this is the job and I'm reviewing a film, mm-hmm, but it, mm-hmm. it doesn't detract from my potential to like a movie because I come, I, I try and I mean, my, I don't even try. Like my instincts are to be sympathetic towards communities that aren't, you know, mine. Uh, like we've talked about regularly on the show. Like when racists get ripped up on screen, I'm not like, oh, you're ripping up white people. I'm like, oh, fuck, all, literally all of them. <laughs> oh, like, you're ripping up white people. people. <laughs> like, like white racists specifically. <laughs> like, specifically. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, do, like, I do. <laughs> like, I will ride a Shoggoth into battle. Like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, I don't identify with them at all, despite having my superficial demographics. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate. Kind of like Mike is saying, like, I, I appreciate that there, we're at a time where uh, you can have not just better representation and, and films that are, you know, they're intellect and, you know, performed and intellectually created and directed and produced by, you know, black voices. Uh, I fucking love the shit out of that. But I also specifically love the fact that we can have films now with characters expressing more radical shit. Mm. And that's something that can happen. And I like that. And I want to see a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that that carries on. Yeah. Having someone like Jordan Peele come out and say that about Get Out uh, being not not for a white audience at all. Um, I think that a majority of, if not like the entire amount of like filmic output that's been going on since like the dawn of film has always been um for like a white or you know uh middle to upper class um demographic but it has never needed to be said um Mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, a black filmmaker can't make a film that's specifically for a black audience and not for a white audience and 
not say anything about it because it's going to be funneled through a white lens um, and him mm-hmm. stipulating the fact that it needs to be um, specifically the way that Jordan Peele is, I guess you could say he's spearheading, like telling people that these, these films are not for you and you need to realize that. And I think uh, mm-hmm. we need to listen and res- listen to and respect that. And then also maybe, you know, make the listening a little bit more active. And uh, when it comes to criticism, and I know like we all have criticisms of this film, like of any man. Oh, of course. Uh, because it is a yeah, film. And like all criticisms are valid, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you have the right justification and, um, and if you are seeing the project, the work uh, and the faces behind it for what and who they are. In in these types of films, uh, the voices that need to be heard in a critical nature are the ones who are in the uh, communities that this film is explicitly for. So, like, I, yeah, I don't yeah. think anyone really needs to see what David Ehrlich from IndieWire has to say about the new Candyman to see if it's good or not. Or, you know, um, see, like, what the main white critics are saying about, you know, like, Jordan Peele's new film. Um, because like, I don't think they can ever understand even just like the experience that the experiential, uh, minutia of how this film operates. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this film, but you know, I'm just using his output, like get out us, uh, technically Candyman, And then like Mm -hmm. a new film that has films like this, you know? But yeah. Um, I think that everyone's criticism is still valid, but sometimes we just need to look around, take a step back and like respect the voices that need to be um, like championed about Mm -hmm. it. And like, it doesn't make me feel any different uh, in like watching, enjoying, or maybe not enjoying a movie because I'm not part of the community that it's for. Like I still, I still think that everyone uh, should have access to it and sit with it and have their thoughts. But uh, I think Mm -hmm. the discourse Mm -hmm. needs to be there, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the voices that um, talk about it in public channels need to be f- uh, coming from the place that it's supposed to be going to. Yeah. I also just run it real quickly, add just one brief comment because it needs to be said, and I'm happy to say <clears throat> it here right now. Uh, it's super okay. Like a lot of white people don't understand that it is super okay for things to not be about them. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they can shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, the thing that makes me mad, uh, I'll take the heat for saying that. Fuck them. <laughs> um, because there's all these times where there's like you know, a character with like, a, you know, like people complaining, specifically, usually like white guys complaining that a movie doesn't have like a white protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like, you want white protagonists? There's like a hundred years of fucking film yeah. history of people that look just like me. I'm fine. <laughs> it's okay. And when I watch like, you know, uh Daniel Kaua um kick ass and 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 get out, I still root for him because I'm watching a cool person be yeah. badass. Like and there's plenty of fucking Luke Skywalkers and I'm not calling out Mark Hamill cuz he's great. Um God bless you Mark Hamill. Like mm-hmm. it's fucking fine. <laughs> Calm down. Shut up. You don't need to be the center of everything. Fucking male Americans. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I didn't even go a step further to say that what they did 
with um the new star wars and this is just like a this is an issue that i have with uh star wars in general is that um they they took uh finn's character and then like yeah. explicitly deliberately sidelined yes. him because of people oh. throwing a fucking hissy yeah. fit oh, damn. Yeah. it was tragic it makes me so mad. That's that's all I wanted. <laughs> I love I love that actor. I could go. In, I could launch. For yeah, exactly. Hours. I love that actor. I love that character. It's fine. It's just fine. Enjoy it anyway, or don't. It's not about <laughs> you. Shut up. Like yeah. No, I think yeah. that's great, and that will always make me chuckle because it's stuff that you know a lot of us have been saying in our heads for a long time. It's nice yeah. to hear it out loud. That's why, like, I'm gonna. T- I'll take the heat. You don't gotta say it. Like, fuck. <laughs> But I think that, like, I guess bringing it back to Candyman, like, I guess maybe the stance of the podcast is, or maybe I'm speaking out of turn, is that, like, all the people that are like, "Uh, there's just too much black people stuff in it can go suck suck the devil's (laughs) dick. Like, and it's probably full of thorns because it's the devil. So, and there's going to be some surprises up in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) At least, like, a harpoon or two. So it's barbed. <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, I just think that uh, whenever any of these movies come out, they're like, oh, I don't know. It's just like, so there's so much like black stuff in it. And it's like, yeah, like the world, because we exist. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, there's so much black pain. Oh, yeah, like the world <laughs> that yeah. we have to navigate yeah. every day. <laughs> fine get over it like and like that doesn't mean everybody needs to watch it but maybe don't bitch about the movie having something like that in it you know what i mean right 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 no you know what everyone needs to watch it and it's fine (laughs) if it's not about you if you have a problem like like people because people act like and then i don't want to blabber it too long because i feel like we've really covered stuff and yeah this episode but the only thing I just was, it's just like people get so mad, like, oh, well, like, how do you feel about how these white people portrayed? I don't identify with them. So I'm not offended when someone's like <laughs> killing Nazis or KKK on screen. I don't be I don't feel like they're attacking me because I'm white. I feel like I don't identify it's, with any uh, of these fucking assholes. They're killing my brethren. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it's like seriously for once in your life, just, you know, experience a piece of media that does not have you in it just like how all these communities have had to um watch all this shit and be told that like this is a must see it's right. going to change it's your universal life universal about the human like, experience it's like i'm not in right. this at all <laughs> yeah that's yeah. so true yeah like sit exactly. the fuck down <laughs> exactly i feel like we're not going to get better yeah. than suck the devil's dick sit the fuck down. So, that, and the revelation that the devil has a cat penis. Uh, well, that said, I gotta say, this, On that this note. conversation so deep and uh, went many places mm-hmm. I did not expect. And uh, I endorse all of them. Thank you, folks at home. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, uh, all our illustrious co-hosts. Would you like to tell the people how they can find you? Um, uh, Luna, will you, would you start? Um, you can find me at Luna underscore Minwi. That's M-I-N-U-I-T on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Andre? Uh, yep. I'm on Twitter. I changed my stupid name again. So it's um, 
you can either find me by my name, Andre Couture, uh, A-N-D-R-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E, or Demon Disc, whatever. Um, and I am always on Letterboxd uh, at Hamburger Harry. I post a lot of shit there. So uh, I also run a film blog. Uh, it's still in its infancy, so um, there's not a lot there, but I am putting some shit out on a regular basis. Uh, it is on Medium. I don't know even know how you like search on Medium, but uh, it's called Celluloid Consomme. Fantastic. Good name, by the way. Dig it. Um, uh, and Mike? Uh, yeah, you um, can find my book, um, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, uh, on Amazon. Um, so check that out if you want. And um, I'm also on Twitter at Strange Cinema 65. And then I'm on Letterboxd at Kubrick 655321. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you for that. And uh, folks at home, you know, you, you can find me on Twitter personally at uh, Real Jeff Ewing, like Film Real, R E L. And other than that, you know where to find me because you already did. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Go out and see Candyman. Yes. Go out and see both of them. And um, Tony Todd, Nita Costa, please come please. on the show. Say our names. <laughs> I will say your name five times. Wait. I will do it. Don't even make me. Wait, should, should we try it? Should we do the Candyman thing? Nice, All right, let's do it. <laughs> Three, two, one. Candyman. 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 See you in hell. All right. <laughs> Be my listener. <laughs> more i'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening from the dawn of record human civilization we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous they've inhabited our dreams and nightmares they've been our protectors and our villains they've symbolized our fears and vices our hopes and potential fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization the need to get out of the shadows behind the walls and into the light in many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. <laughs>